So Joshua chapter 9, starting at verse 1, and we'll read the whole chapter. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hiphites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they, on their part, with uh, acted with cunning and went and made provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and, and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? And where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon, and to Og king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtoreth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go to meet them, and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shephereth, Beareth, and Kirith-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them, because the leaders of the congregation had swore to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the elders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath come upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you, when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to us, do to us. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Well, it's uh, quite remarkable how many people have become millionaires off of uh, maybe clever but useless or stupid ideas. For example, back in 1975, a guy named, by the name of Gary Dahl came out with this new product called a pet rock. And uh, this pet rock came with, as you can see, hay. It came with a little manual, a box. The manual told you how to take care of your rock. It also told 
you how you could teach your rock to do tricks like sit and stay. Um, it had uh, other tricks uh, associated with it. And this is a really stupid idea, but it sold 1.5 million units in the first six months. They sold them for about $4, and that was you know, a lot more back then, and they made about $3 a piece on each one. The rocks that were purchased for the pet rocks were allegedly purchased for about a penny each. And with the packaging and everything, they made about $3 a piece, and within a f- the course of a few months, Gary uh, Dahl became a millionaire because of a pat rock. Early in the 1970s, two brothers by the name of Bernard uh, and Murray Spain owned two Hallmark shops, and they came across this smiley face image. And you've seen this image everywhere before. And they, this image was actually created by a designer some years before, but it was never copyrighted. So Bernard and Murray Spain decided they were going to copyright it along with the insightful phrase, have a happy day or have a good day. And after they copyrighted, they sold 50 million buttons in 1971 alone, along with countless other products. And in the process, they made millions and millions of dollars. And it was all because of that little smiley face that a little toddler could make. But the greatest example of kind of clever marketing is something that all of us have probably purchased, and that's bottled water. Ira Flato, NPR radio host, puts it this way. She says, what if I told you that my new business plan, I've got a new business. This is how it's going to work. I want to sell you something that most people can already get for free, or almost free, and you're going to pay a lot more money for it. And my product costs lots more, but the quality is about the same as the less expensive stuff, or almost free stuff that you're getting now. And by the way, the chief stuff is already being delivered straight to your home. You don't even have to transport it anywhere. You probably think I'm a bit nuts to go into business, right? According to the Beverage Marketing Corporation, bottled water was an $18.5 billion industry in 2017. It's currently expanding, and it's the biggest beverage category in the United States currently. And by the year 2020, or 2025, it's estimated that the global market size will be $215.12 billion dollars. I went to a Sabres game a few weeks ago, and you know, I was thirsty, and to get a bottle of water, 16.9 ounce, it's like $4, and everybody's buying them like crazy. Who would have thought that this would ever take on, that something that was essentially free, that we could get anywhere, we would pay money for? And the, the reason for it is clever marketing. Back in uh, years ago, they marketed water as something that was convenient, something that was pure safe for your family, and also something that was a status symbol. If you carried and drank a certain type of water, it meant that you were important, that you meant something. And you, you look at these different ideas and these different inventions, and you know part of it might be frustrating because you think to yourself, well, I've worked a nine-to-five job my whole life, and I've never seen a million dollars, and these people come up with these crazy ideas and instantly become millionaires. And so there's something a little bit frustrating about that, but there's also something we ought to admire about them, that they were able to take something that was useless and make it useful. In the similar way in the passage that, we've, uh, that we're looking at today, 
uh, we've been kind of journeying through the scriptures. We've gone from Genesis to Exodus. Now we're in Joshua over the years. And as we've done so, we've kind of looked at the story of Israel. And we've looked at things from kind of their perspective. And in this passage, we see that Joshua and the Israelites are deceived. And so part of us might be a little bit frustrated with that as we're kind of rooting for Israel as the protagonist. But I think if we look at the action of the Gibeonites and their deception and their cleverness, I think it reveals something important to us. And I think as we look at it closely, there's something to be admired about their cleverness. And I think in turn it reveals something about how they related to God. So as we look at this passage today, I'd like to consider four different ways that we see people relating to God in, jo- in the book of Joshua. And I'm going to kind of set up some contrasting ways that people viewed uh, the Word of God, and then we'll close with how the Gibeonites responded to the Word of God. So there's four different ways we can respond to the Word of God, as we see in the book of Joshua. First thing we can do is we can insulate ourselves from God's Word. Joshua 6.1 says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. Now the people of Israel had heard all the things that God had done for, or the people of the nations had heard all the things that God had done for the Israelites, how He had delivered the Israelites through the Red Sea, how He defeated Sihon and Og. And the people of Jericho knew that the God of Israel was strong and knew that He was mighty. But they chose, it seems, not to believe that. They hold themselves up in in a wall. They chose not to reach out for peace with the Israelites. They chose to find protection in their own walls. Hoping, perhaps, that maybe things would be different. Hoping, perhaps, that their walls would protect them. Hoping that what they knew to be true would not be true. And, And I think that we can do that also in our relationship with God sometimes. There's things in our life maybe we know that we shouldn't be doing something. And we know that that's true, but we don't want to hear it. And so we insulate ourselves from God's Word. We insulate ourselves from anything that might be convicting. And so we separate ourselves from God's Word. Maybe we don't read God's Word. Maybe we don't listen to God's Word being preached. Or maybe if we do, we just kind of cast it by the wayside. And we kind of insulate ourselves from God's Word because we just don't want to hear it. I'm mostly a vegetarian, but what's interesting about that is I love a place called Chick-fil-A that has virtually no uh, vegetarian options. And I don't really like chicken at all, but I like chicken from Chick-fil-A. And so any opportunity that I get, I will go to Chick-fil-A. But somebody was telling me a few weeks ago, and they they started telling me, do you know that Chick-fil-A isn't really that healthy? And I'm thinking in my mind, no, no, stop, stop right there. Stop right there. Those, they're holy chickens. They are blessed of the Lord. I mean, I, I know that they're unhealthy, but I, I don't want to hear that, right? I mean, if we go to McDonald's and get a hamburger, we know it's not healthy. We don't want to hear it in that moment. And I think in the same way when it comes to certain things in our lives, maybe we don't want to hear it. And so we insulate ourselves from God's Word, avoiding it because we don't want to change. So we can insulate ourselves from God's word. We could also fight against God's word. Joshua 9, 1-2 said this, As soon as all the Israelites who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea 
toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and against Israel. So these enemy forces of Israel, they sense an opportunity. Israel's been defeated at Ai, and so now they think to themselves, if we gang up against them and we unite together, we maybe can defeat them. And again, rather than reaching out in peace, rather than accepting that they try to attack Israel, and they gang up on Israel to defeat Israel. In a similar way, I think we can sometimes fight against God's Word. See, when we insulate ourselves from God's Word, maybe we avoid God's Word, we, don't, we just kind of put it out of our mind. But when we fight against God's Word, we actively fight against what God has said. And so we know what God says, and maybe we reinterpret it to say something that God never intended. Now this is happening all, all the time in our culture. We see it most clearly in with the way that our culture views homosexuality or uh, that views uh, abortion. But it also applies to so many other different areas of our life. You know, maybe it happens in our own life as we... We know that God tells us, that Jesus tells us to love our enemies, but then we think to ourselves, surely He couldn't have been talking about my neighbor. He couldn't have been talking about my coworker. If, if God knew my coworker, I'm sure that He would never say anything like that. And so we don't like what God says, so we reinterpret it or make it so as somehow it doesn't apply to us. And often what we do is, just like the nations came together, we often gather people around us to support our viewpoints, to confirm ourselves so we don't feel guilty about what we're doing. 2 Timothy 4, 3-4 says this, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Lee Strobel tells a story that kind of illustrates this point. He says, you know, imagine a, a young lady and a man go out, a young high schooler go out for, on a date, and uh, the daughter, uh, her father says, you must be home by 11 o'clock. But she's having a great time, and it's 1045, and then suddenly what the father said starts to become a little bit more ambiguous. They're having a great time, so they think to themselves, so what did he really mean when he said you must be home by 11 o'clock? Was he, was he talking to us specifically, or was he just kind of making a general statement? Was he saying you must be home by 11 o'clock, as if that's something that's generally a good thing to do? Or was he just making an observation, saying you must be home by 11 o'clock? Most good people are home by 11 o'clock. And, and we know that the daughter thought to herself, I, I know my father loves me, and would he really be so adamant and inflexible if he knew, if he really loves me? He certainly couldn't have meant this, because I'm having a great time, and he certainly wouldn't want me to come home if he wants me to be happy, and he, wants, and he loves me. But also, what does home mean? Whose home was he talking about? Was it my home? Was it my parents' home? Was it my boyfriend's home? And who's to say he was even being literal about that? 
Maybe he was talking figuratively about what it means to be home. You know, people say home is what the heart is, so maybe my heart is here, so maybe he was just talking about me being here at 11 o'clock. And he said, you must be home by 11 o'clock, but exactly what did he mean? Did he, he didn't specify whether that was 11 p.m. or 11 a.m. And, and further, it wasn't clear what time zone he was talking about. Was it central time or was it eastern time? Because if it's uh, time like in Hawaii, it's not even 7 o'clock. And really, if you think about it uh, clearly... We're always before 11. If you pass 111, you're before the next 11. So, given all this information, how can we be held responsible for what our Father said, given the ambiguity of what He said? I think that's kind of where we are at as a culture. If we want justification for anything, we can find it. And we can reinterpret what God says to justify our cause. And so, in that way, we can fight against God's Word. So we can insulate ourselves from God's Word. We can fight against God's Word. And third, we can ignore God's Word. Verse 14 says, So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Now think about this from the Israelites' perspective. The only command that they were given was not to make a covenant with the people of the land, the people of the Canaanites. And these people tell them they're from a foreign nation. They give them evidence of that. And they come and offer to be their servants. So to the Israelites, you'd think, well, they're not Canaanites. They're offering to be our servants and do our dirty work for us. Why wouldn't we make a covenant with them? And it's so easy and so clear and so common sense that they don't even think about asking the Lord about it, consulting the Lord. And I think sometimes that happens in our life. Or sometimes we are going along in life and maybe something in our life is, seems so common sense, so ordinary, that we don't even think about consulting God. We get a job offer and it offers such good benefits and such a high pay that why would we even consult the Lord about it? Of course He would want us to take it. We're in a relationship and seems to be going well and makes us happy, feels warm inside. So why would we ask God about it? Of course God would want us to be in that. Or everyone is watching this or that movie or television show. And so we think, of course, I'll watch it. Or maybe we think to ourselves, well, I'm not doing anything important or significant today, so why do I need to consult the Lord about it? I mean, I'm not making any major decisions, so why do I need to consult the Lord? You know, we think about dealing, uh, having faith in the midst of difficult times, and we think about when bad things happen to us, journeying through that with God and trusting in Him. But sometimes I think it's hardest to trust in God when things are going really well. Because when things are going really well, we don't feel like we need God. That's why Jesus says that it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Because when you're rich, when you have everything that you need, you feel like you don't need God. It's common sense. Everything kind of lines up. All of your decisions are being made in accordance with your will, and everything seems to go well, so why would you need to consult God? 
I think that's where Satan wants to keep us. He wants to keep us in a place where we feel like we don't need God's Word. And so we ignore God's Word. Famous uh, missionary William Cowper once said this, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. And so he wants to keep us in a place where we're ignoring God's Word. And we feel like we don't need it. So we can insulate ourselves from God's Word. We can fight against God's Word. We can ignore God's Word. We can also tremble at God's Word. And I think this is what the Gibeonites do. And think of this from the Gibeonites' perspective. God has told the Israelites to wipe out all the people of the land, including the Gibeonites. Further, somehow they knew that the Israelites were not supposed to enter into a covenant with them. And so they're backed into a corner because the Israelites are supposed to wipe them out, not supposed to make a covenant with them. And so what are they to do? And the response is clever. They make this ruse where they put on old clothes, old sandals. They get all this crusty bread and burst wineskins and they come and say, we're from a distant land and we'll be your servants. Now what's interesting and kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around in this passage is that they're dishonest, they're deceptive. And we can't really praise their deceptiveness, their, the fact that they deceived the Israelites. It's not something we you know, say, yeah, we should be deceptive like they were. But we look at their situation and how they responded to it, and I think it, res- it demonstrates a remarkable faith and a remarkable trust in God. See, they truly believe that the God of Israel is powerful. They truly believe that they cannot win against the God of Israel. And they choose not to side with all these enemy nations who are lined up against Israel, but they choose to side with the God of Israel. We also know that they were somehow acquainted with God's Word, that they knew that the people of Israel were not to enter into a covenant with the people of the land. And they believed that. And so they used that to their advantage. We see that they side with Israel rather than with God. We see in the next chapter when all the nations gang up again against Gibeon this time, the Gibeonites call upon Israel to rescue them. We can't say for sure that the Gibeonites became full-fledged followers of God or that they were converted in any real sense, but we know that they had faith. They believed God and they took Him at His word. And because of that, we see that they were blessed. We see that they were saved. They weren't destroyed like the other nations. And, you know, thinking about it, if they would have just come and entered into a covenant with, you know, with God and come to Him, who knows what it might have happened, how God might have shown His grace in a different way. But they were saved. They were made woodcutters. And also what's interesting is it says that they were made woodcutters and drawers of water. And they were made woodcutters and drawers of water for the temple. The worship of God. They were given a prime place of significance in the worship of God. We see in the next chapter again, the nations decide they're going to gang up against the Gibeonites. That they're uh, younger brother, so to speak, has become rogue, and so they're going to attack the Gibeonites. 
Gibeonites call the Israelites to come and protect them. And Joshua comes and he fights for the Gibeonites. And we see something remarkable as Joshua fights for the Israelites or for the Gibeonites. If you turn over to chapter 10, verses 10 to 11 says this. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, speaking of the nations who were attacking the Gibeonites, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There are more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. See, what happens here in this passage is that God fights on behalf of not just Israel, but on behalf of the Gibeonites. He fights on behalf of them. And what that indicates to me is that they have become a part of Israel. They have been grafted into the people of God by their faith and their trust in the God of Israel. Because of the fact that they trembled at God's word. They believed God and they did everything that they could so that they would not be under the curse of God. Scriptures indicate that should be our response to God. Isaiah 66, 1-2 says this, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place for my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. He says, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Here's the point. The person who's pleasing to God is the person who trembles at God's word. The person who's pleasing to God is the person who trembles at God's word. And so I would ask for us to consider today, what is our response to God's word? Do we insulate ourselves from God's Word? We don't want to hear it. We don't want to be convicted. Do we fight against God's Word? We reinterpret it to suit whatever purpose we want. Do we ignore God's Word, thinking that we don't need God's Word in our life? Or do we tremble at God's Word? You see, when we tremble at God's Word, we believe God's Word so deeply that we do everything that we can to adjust our lives to God's truth. The question is not, is what God said true? The question is, how do I respond to what God has said? That's the response God is looking for from us. Back a number of years ago, there's a story about um, this telegraph company, back when telegraphs were used. And this company was allegedly, I don't know if it's a true story or not, but they were allegedly looking for uh, Morse code operator. And so this young man decided he was going to apply. And so he went to the office, and it was a very busy office with people talking and lots of noises, and there was a telegraph kind of clicking in the background. And so he goes up to the receptionist, and the receptionist had him fill out some paperwork, and she said, okay, if you could just go sit down, and then we'll call you back into the office when it's your time for the interview. And so he goes and he sits down with seven other people who were there to be interviewed. And then after a couple minutes, he gets up and he just goes back into the office. And the people who were, the other people who were being interviewed were thinking to themselves, okay, what is he doing? I haven't heard anybody call. He's just wandering around in this back office. 
And so they're thinking to, the, to themselves, okay, he's going to be reprimanded or maybe he'll be even disqualified for this job. But a few minutes later, the young man emerged with the interviewer. And the, interv- and the interviewer said, gentlemen, thank you for coming today, but the job has been filled by this young man. The other applicants began grumbling to one another, saying, we, we've been here. We didn't even get interviewed. And so finally, one got, worked up the courage and said, wait a minute, I don't understand something. He was the last one to come in here. We never got a chance to be interviewed, and yet he got the job. That's not, that's not fair. The employer responded, and he said, I'm sorry, but all the time you've been sitting here, the telegraph has been taking out the following message in Morse code. If you understand this message, then come right in. The job is yours. None of you heard it or understood it. This young man did, so the job is his. They were applying to be a Morse code operator. They probably all knew Morse code, but they weren't listening. They weren't attentive, and so they didn't respond appropriately. Will we do the same thing? Will we listen, and will we respond to what God has to say? The person who's pleasing to God is the person who trembles at God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word, because we believe that in your word we find life. and We find a relationship with you. Lord, we thank you that you sent your Son as the Word made flesh to die on the cross for our sins, to rise again so that we might have life. Lord, I pray that we would be people who tremble at at your Word, who believe your Word so firmly that the only question that we have in our minds is how do we respond appropriately? How can we adjust our lives to what you have to say? We thank you for all that you do for us, Lord. We look forward to all you're going to do. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.